Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sophie Box. I'm Denali Bell, and today's guest is Josh Durbin, and he's going to discuss his time as a formerly incarcerated prison inmate. What he's going to share with us is how he got there, what decisions led him to it. Maybe some of them are his, maybe some are somebody else's. We also have our, our dog Lola here. <laughs> but he's also going to share with us what life was like behind bars, kind of the down and dirty of the prison business. And then we're going to move on to how he's managed to overcome the recidivism rates in the United States, which is the most heavily incarcerated population in the world. And we also have the highest recidivism rate with people, which means people returning to prison. So I'm just going to give you a little background on Josh and my relationship. Um, Josh worked for my husband in 2012. Yes. And they work in the construction industry. And in between that time, there was a brief intermission where you kind of got in trouble and went to prison, and then you came back. And he rose up through our business and now runs the entire field operations. So he's got quite an inspiring story that we want to share. And part of the reason I invited you on the podcast was the whole purpose of our podcast is to help people in some way. And I think sometimes just sharing your story helps people not feel isolated and alone or Sometimes they can learn from it or be inspired by it, by what you've done or where you've come from. And it, you are helpful. So we have people in our lives that have been to jail or prison, and I've called you and you've helped me through it by giving me advice on how to handle it or telling me how the whole system works. And it's been truly helpful. But I think even within our business, you've been helpful because we're in the construction business. So people sometimes come from jail or prison and work with us. I've noticed through Dave's stories that he tells me about your communications with them is that that part of our business has improved immensely because you communicate well with those guys in particular because I think it's because they believe and understand that you know where they're coming from. And I also think there is another component that you hold them accountable yes. in a way that is necessary to help them grow. So I love that. And I love your heart that you want to help and you want to help people reintegrate into society in a way that makes it easier on them, mm -hmm. you know, because it does come with challenges. So that's why I invited you to the podcast, because I think it's a big deal what you've done. It's a huge deal. You've overcome the odds, you've beat them and you're here and you are flourishing and thriving. And so I, that's different. So we're going to just kind of jump in um, to tell people your story. Okay. So, and where all stories start is your childhood. <laughs> so we can kind of get a full picture of you are. So if you want to just kind of tell us how old you are and where you grew up, maybe a little bit about your childhood experiences. So I'm 41 years old. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I had what you would call a traditional welfare childhood. I had a great mother. She was always in the picture. But it was your drug scene, living on welfare kind of childhood. Where at in California? Uh, Riverside, California. Okay, okay. Um, and we, we moved from Riverside to Banning, California, back to Riverside. There was really never a, a stable housing, mm -hmm. constant moving. There was, growing up, there was many nights where we would go to sleep, me and my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we would wake up and the house would still be full of people, mm-hmm. right? Um, typical drugs constantly running through the house of people. You don't know anybody in your house when you go to sleep and they're there when you wake up. And how old were you when that started? So a lot of my memory of being a kid is real blurry. Okay. Um, but I do remember all the way back to when I was eight, nine years old, this mm-hmm. happening, mm-hmm. 10, 11. And this, where was your father at this time? So my dad lives, lived in Boise, Idaho, and I used to get the opportunity to come see him during the summertime. Okay. Um, I remember one time when he, I was able to come and spend the summer with him. He had actually um, was married to, I can't remember the lady's name, anyway, um, and she had four kids as well. Mm-hmm. So we all lived in this house, and when it was time for bed, we weren't allowed to eat anymore. Food was done. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get to eat very much. We were either living in the back of a station wagon or we were living with somebody. And I remember one night when my dad had came upstairs and he found a jar of jelly in my closet. And before everything was said and done, he had thrown me down a flight of stairs. <sighs> How old were you? Little, very little. Under, under 12, maybe 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I had called my grandma after that happened, who lived in Riverside at the time, and she reached out to the Nazarene church from that pastor to another pastor, came and picked me up. Oh, wow. They took me to their house that night. I was on a plane the next day back to California. Back to live with your mom? Back to live with my mom. Okay. And that was the last time I seen my dad until I was 18, 19. Oh, okay. Childhood was not very good. It's not what you would call a stable environment for sure. Um, there was a point in time in my life where I believe that my mom did her best. Mm-hmm. She really did. She tried. Uh, she she let her addiction get the best of her. Mm-hmm. And she accepted the fact that she had lost. And she took me and dropped me off with my grandma. That was brave. Very brave. And hard, um, I'm sure. She dropped me off with her. And then that's where I grew up, basically, is with my Your grandparents. Grandma. Okay. And is that the grandma I met? It is. I like her. Yes. She's a cool lady. Um, how, and how old were you when you went to live with grandma? I was a teenager. Okay. I can't remember exact age, but I know I was a teenager. Um, I hadn't really started my life of crime or drugs uh-huh. or anything like that yet, but I did find them pretty quick. What, um, how old were you when you very first tried drugs or alcohol? Um... I want to say I was probably 13 when I did meth for the first time. 13? Wow. That's young. Maybe 14. Yeah. Um, My mom is the one who taught me how to do meth. So you did drugs for the very first time with her? Yes. How did that situation unroll? Like what, was there a party? Were you in the house with her? What happened? My mom had a rule that she always, or a saying that she would say that she would rather I do things at home. Mm Mm-hmm than out on the street somewhere. So I had got curious about drugs in general, smoking cigarettes. And I had asked my mom for a cigarette one time. She gave it to me. I asked my mom for some pot one time. She gave it to me. Okay. And then when I, as I started getting older, I I think I was 15 years old. Um, I was dating a 27-year-old stripper at the time. You were 15? 
Okay. Um, who was a friend of my mom's. Yes. Who was married at the time. Um, and somehow it came up, but meth got brought up and I wanted to try it. So my mom. And you had witnessed it and seen I've it. I've seen it my whole life growing up. I wanted to try it. And so my mom let me try it. And it was kind of a downward spiral from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had got arrested when I was a teenager in Riverside, California. I was caught joyriding in a stolen car with some guys. Okay. Um, I got put on probation. How old were you when, I'm sorry, did you? Maybe 15, 16, okay. Okay. 15-ish. Um, I got put on probation and I went to juvenile hall for I think 10 days in Riverside, California. And then got out of that and I was placed in drug court. Um, I was the first class to graduate drug court in California. Made the front page of the paper. It was a big deal. Um, other than that, that's that's basically childhood in a nutshell. Okay. And you said you moved around a lot. We did. Like, so how many houses do you think you lived in? Or... Um, with my mom, she tried her hardest to keep us in the same one, but mm-hmm. it didn't work out so well. We probably lived in five, six different places. Okay. Living with friends. Um, I know at one point in time, we lived in a motorhome in my grandparents' bottom driveway growing up. Um, uh-huh. We had to shower outside with a garden hose. Um, it was well, rough. Was that fun when you were a kid or was that at rough? first, you think it's kind of fun. <laughs> okay. But then it becomes pretty embarrassing as oh, you start to realize what's going on. And get friends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I didn't provide a super stable life for my kids either. I We just answered the question for my oldest son, how many times we had moved around because Dave would build homes and we would move in and out of them. And he'd probably lived in 24 homes, which is really unfortunate for children. I didn't realize we tried to keep them in the same school district, but it's really destabilizing, Mm -hmm. right? To have to make new friends and do new things and start, it's almost like starting life all over again. Right. And then I think you get behind on, He's probably ahead on meeting people and making friends, but then you're behind on other things because that's what you're focusing on. Right. It's kind of the the social survival of a child. Did you feel that at all? Didn't really have very many friends. It was hard to make friends. Uh-huh. Um, but I did have a couple friends that, as I got older, but we never really had a stable enough environment to mm-hmm. to create that relationship with other people. That's sad too, huh? It is. It's, <laughs> yeah. It was, sucks. Does it? Do you have friends now, or is it? Do you find it hard to still make friends? I find that people nowadays, it's easier to not be friends with people because mm-hmm. if you make friends with someone, it's almost like you're willing to take on their problems. Is how I feel. Mm-hmm. So if I just keep you on as an acquaintance, your problems don't become my problems. Oh, I mean. That that's good, right? We have mm-hmm. to separate people's problems, but it also, I think, is a good skill you have, like within our business, right. how you separate that for people and teach them. It's I think you're big on personal responsibility, right? Accountability is a big thing to me. It is. It is. How did you do in school? School was great. Mm. I didn't have one particular school district my whole life, mm-hmm. which kind of sucked. Uh, I did good. 
I was going to drop out of high school when I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, just didn't want to do it. I was working for my grandpa at the time. And um, I got the opportunity to go to a continuation school in Southern California. And I was able to complete two years of high school in one year. And I was oh. able to gra- actually graduate and get my diploma. Good. So schooling was good. Did you play sports? Were you I involved in? I played in? baseball for about 16 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was my, that was my life growing up. Was that your thing? It Did, was. You were good? I was really good at it. I enjoyed it. I knew I was good at it. That's Kind of cocky. <laughs> but. That's, that's good though, that you had something like yes. that, I think. Um, so I guess that leads us to, we can kind of see right, a trajectory of where this might have led into drug and alcohol use, right? Mm-hmm. Or what, what did you use? Drug-wise. Drug or an alcohol? I wasn't much of an alcoholic. Okay. Um, I enjoyed having a beer now and then. Even to this day, I enjoy maybe a glass of wine. Uh-huh. That's about it. Not, not much of an alcohol fan. Drug-wise, um, I've used almost every drug there is. Other than heroin and crack cocaine. What was your favorite? Methamphetamine. What, okay. What do you think you liked about it? I liked the rush that it gave you. Mm-hmm. It was coming down off the rush. That was the hardest part. But it was worth it to have the rush. It was. It's, the, it's hard to say this, but the high that you get from methamphetamine is the best feeling you could ever get in life. Really? Do you, can you remember it? Yes. Or, oh, you can? Yes. I can... I can remember it as it was like yesterday. And how many years have you been clean? I've been clean since 2018. Okay. So do you still ever have the desire? No, I do no longer have the desire to use drugs. Okay. There's never a craving or an urge, never a thought. I'm, I'm at the point now in life where I can turn things off. Mm -hmm. That might sound weird, but I could wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to go do drugs today. Mm. Or I could wake up tomorrow and say, I'm not going to do drugs today. The cravings will be there if you want them to be there. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for something to cover that part of your life up, then you'll reach for it. You got arrested in high school, mm-hmm. right? And then when was your, did you go to prison once or twice? I've been to prison three times. Oh, three times. Okay. Um, what was the first time for? So in 2002, I got arrested for grand theft and burglary. Okay. I was living in McCall at the time. Okay. Um, I had went out and broke. I had just moved to Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. I moved into a trailer in Cascade, Idaho. I had no furniture. I had nothing. I just had the clothes that I came with. Mm-hmm. Um, I met a few guys. We roommated together. We had nothing. We started doing meth. And I'm sorry, how old were you at this time? Probably 19. Okay. About 19. Okay. I think 20. And everyone did meth in this group? Yes. Okay. We all kind of grouped together. Um, one meth user, you can usually find the other ones. Okay. Um, and we came up with this idea that people have cabins in McCall. So we went and decided to break into the cabin. Oh. And I took their furniture. I took their silverware. And I moved their stuff out and I moved it into my house. So I had things. Oh, so you, okay. Cause you had nothing. I had okay. nothing. And so for some reason I thought that was okay. <laughs> um, so I had got arrested for burglary and grand theft. 
So how did you get caught? So <laughs> a few days later, after we came up with this grand idea to steal the furniture, um, I drove by a job site where somebody was framing and I pulled in there and I stole some tools that were just sitting there. <laughs> I took the tools down and I pawned them. And then it was maybe three days later that the cops came looking for the guy that pawned the tools. Oh. So there was already a police remark made for the furniture. And it all just kind of. Okay. And they there. noticed the furniture. And, yep. And it was in there. And how long did you go to prison for? So I went to jail for that. Okay, jail. And while I was sitting in jail, um, it was my first felony charge ever. Um, the first offer I got was three plus seven for a total of 10 years. Um, At 19? Yes. So the judge gave me the opportunity for a rider program. So I took it. Okay. What's that? A rider program is usually a 180-day program that's held on a different prison yard up north. Okay. At that time. And the judge still holds jurisdiction over you. After 180 days, he brings you back in front of you, brings you back in front of him. And depending on how you did in that program, they can grant you probation or they can impose your sentence. So it's a program in a prison system? Okay. That you have to go through some kind of rehabilitation? Kind of. Okay. And it's not, it's 180 days of classes and everything along those lines. I did the program. Felt like I did pretty good. I came back, went in front of him. He gave me an additional 365 days in county jail. So I did the county jail. I was released from there a year later. So I have a question about um, the program. What Did you learn anything from the classes? Did it help you in life? Or was it just something you were getting through to get through what the judge had required of you? I got absolutely nothing out of the program. Okay. Was that because there was nothing good being offered or was that because you weren't The programs that the prison system offers are good if you're willing to accept it. So it's like anything, what you put into it, right? I didn't believe I had a problem. Oh, okay. Right? I was young. I was dumb. So I just did what I had to do (laughs) to get out of jail. Okay. So so you spent a total of 365 days plus the 180. Yes. That's a long time for a young man. Yes, it is. That changes you. It does. And then you came out, mm-hmm. and then what caused the next charge? Or were there any other scares or charges in between? <laughs> there was. I ended up moving from McCall to Boise to Meridian um, and somehow found myself right back into the meth scene. Mm. Um, Why do you think? I think... Going back to the meth scene was a comfort zone mm-hmm. because I had underlining problems that I didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. So you blanket those, right? You choose to do drugs. And the people and the social environment was familiar. Correct. Okay. So. And comfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you do drugs and you hang out with those kind of people, you're comfortable because that's your scene. Mm-hmm. It's sad, but it's true. I had, was on probation out, out of Valley County, moved to Boise, wasn't supposed to move. I did anyway. Because uh, you're a young man and you're going to do what you want to. <laughs> there's a knock at the door, open the door, and there's a bunch of cops there looking for me. Mm-hmm. When they came inside, there was a bunch of meth that was found. Um, there were some pills that were found. 
and I was arrested on for possession of methamphetamine. Okay. How, and what, what was the consequences of those actions? <laughs> um, went to court and ended up getting a three plus four sentence for a total of seven, plus the, t- the three plus seven out of Valley County, and I had my sentence imposed. Um, I was sent- three plus seven, so you're meaning like 10 years? It's a total of 10 years, but okay. when you say three plus seven, it's three fixed with seven indeterminate. Okay. You're going for a minimum of three. Okay. Maximum of 10. Okay. And how long did you actually spend there? I went in for three and a half years. Three and a half years. Okay. That's, oh my goodness. So how old are you by this time? I'm in my mid-20s at this time. Your mid-20s, and now we're up to three and a half, four, almost five, five, six years? Combined, yes. So most of your adulthood at this point is spent in spent incarcerated. of my adult life incarcerated than not. Okay. And so you get out. Mm-hmm. And then where, where are you in life? What's going on? I get released from prison and my girlfriend that I had before I went in, we had kids mm-hmm. together. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh yeah, I do. I guess I know Josiah. Yes. So. Um, I don't know him. I know of him. I move out to Star uh-huh. and I'm living out there. Um, she's seeing another guy. I found out that while I was incarcerated, she was seeing somebody else. Oh, okay. So. One night I came up with this idea that I was going to go down to the torch mm-hmm. because I knew her sister worked there. Okay. And the torch is? A strip club. Okay. That's what I thought. I just didn't, wasn't sure. So I went down to the strip club, found her sister and took her sister home. Oh. So. I just don't think this story is going to end well. It's not. <laughs> um, I wasn't really too familiar with pills at the time because mm-hmm. they really weren't my thing. Okay. But the sister really loved pills. Okay. So she introduced that into my life. So what kind of pills? Um, anywhere from Oxycontin to Hydrocodone to okay. Xanax. You okay. Know, those kinds. Um, so I'm living with her now. Yeah, because aren't those are kind of the opposite of meth? They're kind of they downers are. and meth's kind of an upper? Yes. And people, do they tend to be one or the other, like an upper or downer person? They Is that a thing? They are, unless you really enjoy not being... In your element. Okay. Then you'll take whatever to make you not be in reality. Correct. Okay. So I'm living with the sister. I end up marrying the sister. Oh, wow. Did you guys ever do Thanksgiving together all as a family? (laughs) So the whole marriage was all out of spite. Everything was. So my goal was to completely ruin the family. So I did. Because where would you learn throughout your whole adulthood skill, coping skills, right. right? They're not teaching those in prison, are they? No. I'm with the sister at the time, addicted to pills. We had got into an argument one night and she had threatened to call the cops on me and I grabbed her phone and I broke the phone. Mm. So the next door neighbor called the cops, they showed up and I got arrested for destruction of a telecommunication device. What? Yes. They arrest people for that? Yes. Oh my gosh, I've broken many phones. <laughs> huh. So being that I was charged with a misdemeanor and I was on felony parole, oh. that violates my parole. I have to say, this is a weird charge. Did you think this was a weird charge? I thought it was. I didn't think it was real. Okay, I just need to make sure I understand this. How did they find out? She call- Did she call the cops? Did- Our next door neighbor called the cops. You broke the phone? Yes. 
And this was enough for them? Apparently, if you're in a domestic dispute and one person is trying to call the police, okay. and you break the phone, okay. you're preventing them. I see. You're preventing them from getting help. Yes. Okay. That, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> so being on parole, charged with misdemeanor, it automatically violates my parole. Oh. So I get sent back to prison. No. Yes. I go to court. So is this number three? This was just a quick stint. Okay. I go to court, but they ship me back out to the prison. Uh-huh. Um, parole is violated. Mm. I go to court. The charge is dismissed. Oh. But at this point, my parole's already been violated. So, so now there's an entire process that you have to go through before you even get back in front of the parole board for them to see that the charge has been dismissed before you can be released again. How long does that take? It's a year. Wow. That's a long time. So you sit out at the prison for a year for a charge that was dismissed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And did you feel at this point that your growth was stunted from being in there or that your learning or your life? I don't think that my life really had a meaning Mm. during all of that. Only thing I worried about was women and money mm-hmm. and drugs, of course. Mm-hmm. Wow. So then let's go to the next. Okay. <laughs> the next stint. <laughs> so I get out. My life is great. Okay. I had made a decision that I wasn't going to get in trouble anymore. Mm-hmm. I was going to turn my life around. Um, I met Dave Bell and went to work for him. That's my husband. I go to work for Dave. Things are great. Okay. I start dabbling. Back into pills a little bit here and there. Hadn't touched meth. Stayed away from it. So you hadn't been in the workforce a long time when you first came to work with us. Right. I didn't know that. There was work history, but yeah. it wasn't consistent. Okay. So I'm working for Dave. Um, dabbling in pills here mm-hmm. and there. Enjoying it. Working, framing outside all day long. Well, and framing is hard work, right? It's very hard. So very it probably took some pain out of your body as well. Yes. Before I realized it, mm-hmm. I was spending about $700 a week on pills. Wow. Wow. Where did you get enough money to do that? I have no idea. Always how I don't understand how this works. Like these, these pills, these drugs cost money. Yeah. And it's always... An exorbitant amount that seems impossible. I mean, that's almost three grand a month. Yeah. And I know in 2012, we weren't paying that much. No. (laughs) (laughs) For people new. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, so you found the money. Found the money. Mm -hmm. We buy the drugs. Um, I'm with my wife at the time. Is this wife number two? This is Anna. Oh, Anna. Okay, your current wife. wife number three. Okay. But... We don't talk about the first one. Um, You're a different person. You can just not pretend like that didn't exist. She's wife number four. Okay. But we don't talk about the first three. Okay. (laughs) That's wise. So I'm with Anna, and we're addicted to pills at this point. Anna was too? Yes. Wow. 100% addicted to pills. Um, How did you meet her? So I went to a Super Bowl party, Mm -hmm. and I had a brunette girl that was there with me. And this blonde girl showed up with another blonde girl. And I couldn't help but stare. Well, she is beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> she I is beautiful. I couldn't help but stare at her. 
And at, at the end of the party, I didn't really know who she was, but I knew her friend. So I actually stalked her on Facebook and found her and strike a conversation with her. That was all she wrote? And she invited me to come down to her house in Jerome, where she lived. So I went and spent the weekend with her. A friend of mine at the time, his name was Josh, he told me on our way down there, he says, do not fall in love. I said, I'm not. I'm just going down for the weekend. <laughs> and here we are, 11 years later. Wow. So you guys went down this road together. Was she already doing pills? or? So Anna had experience with pills. Okay. Um, she wasn't a junkie at the time. Uh-huh. Is she, does she mind us sharing, us sharing this? No, she won't mind. Okay. My brother, not blood brother, but basically my only true friend I've ever had in this world, was released from prison and he moved in with us. Mm-hmm. I did everything in my power to try and help him succeed. My life was failing at the time due to my pill addiction. And I was trying to help him so bad. He went to work for Dave. And then somehow in between that time, he found meth mm. and started doing meth. So he got fired from his job um, and moved out of my house. He was working for us? Yes. Okay. He moved out of my house. And ends up getting arrested. And he gets sent back to prison. Mm. Um, by now, Anna and I are so deep into our pill addiction that we can't hold down a house. We can't pay our bills. We're living with my mom. Mm. We've lost everything. And has your mom, was your mom still doing drugs and drinking? My mom's or? been clean for, I'm going to ballpark this. Okay. Year. 10, 12 years. Okay. 13, 14 years, something. So she was clean. My mom's been clean for a long time. She was clean when you guys moved in with her. Yes. Okay. Um, Thank God. Praise God. I know, right? Yeah. She's such a great person when she's not on drugs. Yeah. I mean, I bet we all are. (laughs) (laughs) We're all better that way, right? So we're living with mom and we're addicted to pills. Mom knows we're on pills. She can see it. Mm Mm-hmm. I meet some people. We come up with this idea that we're going to move from New Plymouth to Boise. So we leave. We move to Boise. Anna and I are there. One night, we're all drinking in the garage. Um, Let me back up here. Sorry. JD goes to prison. I get a phone call about three or four months later. That JD died. Mm. The phone rings. I answer the phone. And the person that I'm speaking with is the warden from the Idaho Department of Corrections. And he said, I'm calling to let you know that you're listed as JD's emergency contact. And I'm calling to let you know that he died. How did he die? I immediately hung up the phone. Because I thought it was a joke. Oh. They called back. And they said, this is not a joke. He's dead. Mm. Something happened to me. I don't know what it was. I lost all feeling, emotion, everything in my body for anyone or anything. Mm. 
and I went down a dark road. Um, How old were you at this at this point? I was in my thirties. Mm-hmm. It's in my thirties. We're sitting at a house in Boise, and a couple of the guys had this idea that we we're going to do some coke. I had never done coke; it wasn't my thing. But I was like, "Sure, let's let's give it a shot." Well, they couldn't get any. Nobody could find any coke. The guy. This that clearly was... wasn't the eighties. Exactly. <laughs> so the guy that I'm buying my pills from. Mm-hmm. Lives in Ontario, Oregon. I knew if he sold pills, he sold meth. Mm-hmm. Where you get one, you get the other. Mm-hmm. And nobody could get Coke. So I came up with the idea why don't we just get some meth? Mm-hmm. It's just as good. So everybody's on board with it. So I leave. Anna's asleep at the time. She has no idea what's going on. I drive out to Oregon. I pick up some meth. I bring it back. Me and all the guys did a couple lines of meth. And something happened that night that I decided I want to do meth for the rest of my life. And I end up I end up going down to a finance company, buying a motorcycle in somebody else's name with their driver's license, getting a loan with this loan officer. I drive off with a motorcycle. How did you get access to all that? Did you? So I used JD's driver's license. Oh, okay. Because I had it because it was mm-hmm. in his belongings that I got mm-hmm. from the prison. Okay. And I went and sat down. We looked similar. Okay. Sat down, filled out the application. Probably felt like a victimless crime because he wasn't there. Exactly. I believed in my mind buying that motorcycle was a part of JD in my life. Mm. Um, and I know that sounds really foolish, but it's the truth. I mean... I don't think anyone's making great decisions when they're right <laughs> in that situation, right? So I buy the motorcycle. Months go by. Anna and I are now full-blown into meth. Wow. Because of that one night. Um, Anna's at the point now where she doesn't trust anybody around her, doesn't trust mm-hmm. me. I don't trust her. I don't trust anybody around. We end up moving to pay it leaving Boise, moving to Payette. I left the motorcycle behind at a buddy's house. I'm in Payette and I'm living in this trailer. I've got my kids there. They're not in school. Anna's there with me. And my whole life was all about meth. Mm. It wasn't providing for my kids. It wasn't getting food. It wasn't working. It wasn't caring about my wife. It was drugs. And where were your kids at this time? They were living with us. Mm-hmm. Just um, on their, kind of on their own? Yep. Okay. And how old were they? I don't know. Okay. I can't remember. Okay. Um, Do they remember that? 
Yes. Okay. The kids remember it. They never talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the year that we had all the snow. Okay. That big mm-hmm. snowmageddon. Yep. I'm outside shoveling snow. I had been up for about three or four days at this time. Shoveling snow. And these two detectives come walking up to me. And they said, uh, Josh. I said, yeah. They said, do you know anything about a blue motorcycle? Mm. I said, no, nothing. What were you feeling inside? A run. Yeah. I should run. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to go inside. I wouldn't let them inside the house. I said, you can talk to me out here in the middle of the snowstorm. <laughs> we'll make this super uncomfortable for you. I knew if they went inside, yeah. they would find the drugs. Mm-hmm. they find something. <laughs> right. So I kept them outside. They were investigating me for the motorcycle forgery. I was being oh. investigated for forgery. Okay. For the loan. They couldn't find the motorcycle. They had no eyewitness that I was the person in there. They knew that I did it. They just couldn't prove it. So, or they would have had a warrant, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. One of the did de- you know this when, when they're talking to you? I do. Okay. Because you're savvy now to the system. Of course. This is just from my years of law and order watching. <laughs> <laughs> One of the detectives that showed up wasn't actually a detective for the police department. He was a detective for the Idaho Department of Corrections. Okay. Oh. So inside the Department of Corrections, they have an investigation unit. Okay. And they investigate and gang were- activity and drug use and everything that's involved in the prison system. But and you weren't in the prison system. Exactly. But if oh. you're part of that life while okay. you're incarcerated, it follows you out here. Wow. Okay. So if you're involved in drugs and gangs in mm-hmm. prison, when you're released, the investigation unit from the Department of Corrections will watch you out here as well. Is that... Are, is that because are you still on parole at this time or probation or what's I've been it? on parole since I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. You still have not been off? Never. Okay. Okay. I've never legally had a beer. Wow. At 41 years old. Wow. That's interesting. Exactly. It's kind of sad, but it's true. The, the Department of Corrections investigator at this point... Mm-hmm realizes who I am, Mm -hmm. knew who I was. I was trying to deny who I was at this time to them. They pat me down. Who did you say you were? They asked if I was Josh and I said no. So I'm trying my hardest, knowing that I have multiple felonies in the house Mm -hmm. that could possibly be a life sentence at this point. And are Anna and the kids in the house at this point too? Yes, they are. Okay, so they're... Is that going through your mind as well? Right. And I thought in the back of my head, if I keep them outside long enough, she's going to come looking for me. She's going to see me out front talking to some detectives. Maybe she could clean the house a little bit and hide (laughs) some stuff. Now, were the kids, could they see this stuff happening? No, I never did anything in front of my kids. Um, Do you think they knew? Yes. Okay. So... The cops finally realize who I am. They find out that I'm on parole still. 
So now they can go in my house as much as they want. Mm-hmm. So we go inside and they're looking for my wife. They know that she's there because they asked him who was in the house and I told him who was in the house. They find her and she has a bag of meth in her bra. So now we're both arrested immediately. They How find, could they find the bag of meth in her bra? They patted her. Well, they oh. asked her. They said, do you have anything on you that you shouldn't? And she pulled it out. Okay. They start looking through the house and they find multiple baggies and scales and... Paraphernalia that would indicate drug use? <laughs> yes. So now we're both arrested. Okay. Oh, how sad. So you're arrested mm-hmm. again. Again. And you are 30s? I'm in my late 30s. Okay. I get arrested for... I got arrested for possession with intent to deliver, manufacturing methamphetamine. These are big charges in Idaho. Possession with intent to deliver, manufacturing methamphetamine. Wow. And Were you manufacturing it? No. Oh, that's just what you were charged with? Yes. Because you had a large amount? So the cop, the Payette Sheriff's Department pulled me outside. They said, you're going to jail. I said, I know. Mm. They said, we're going to go search the house. Are you, were we going to find anything? I said, no. He says, why not? I said, because I got rid of it. He says, okay. So I get arrested and I go down to Payette County Jail and I'm charged with this slew of trumped charges. And these charges, after almost a year of sitting in county jail, get dismissed. Because the Payette County Sheriff's Department officer lied on a sworn statement. Wow. And I caught him. I was facing... It was a provable lie. Yes. I was facing a life sentence. Um, when I found out that I was facing a life sentence, I didn't have anything to lose at this point. Mm-hmm. So we may as well take it all the way to jury trial. A life sentence? A life sentence. I was going to go to prison. Did you think about running? There was nothing I was going to do. I was in prison. I did you think jail. about escaping? <laughs> no. You don't? No. You can't say that even if you did, could you? No, I think so. <laughs> I think I would be thinking it. As soon as I found out I was facing a life sentence, I decided, what do I got to lose? Yeah. Let's go all the way to jury trial. Oh, sure. So. Did you have a public defender or your own lawyer? I did. I had a public defender okay. at the time. So when you are arrested, everything is what you say. You incriminate yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I asked my attorney, he says, you admitted to the sheriff's department that you sold methamphetamine. I said, no, I didn't. I never would admit that. No matter how high or drunk a person is, if they've had any time in the prison system, they'll never admit to doing anything like that. Amongst my time with addicts, they don't admit to anything. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. We will deny it And they like the end. Exactly. Ask <laughs> and they're pub- adept at it. Yes. <laughs> so. I asked my public defender. Okay. I said, can I see the body cam footage where I told the officer that I sold methamphetamine? He says, no, because I've already seen it. I'm like, you saw it? He goes, yes. I said, and I said that? He goes, yes. Your public defender said this? Yes, and I could not believe this. And I'm sitting in county jail and I'm going... And he wouldn't allow you to see it. Right. 
because he works for the state. This is a tricky thing, isn't it? It is. So I sat there for almost a year, and it came down to the day to pick jury. Mm -hmm. And I picked up the phone, and I called the public defender's office. I said, you're going to bring me the body cam footage off of that officer. I said, or I'll lock this jail down, and we're not going to court. I need to see that video. Something within you knew. Yes. About an hour later, I get called for an attorney visit. And I go up there and I asked him, I said, do you have the camera? He says, no, I got these papers for you. I said, what's that? He goes, this is a dismissal from the state. Wow. I said. This feels corrupt. I said, a dismissal. Do you think it was? Do you think it was a mistake or do you think think he was? the whole entire time. The, the state of Idaho was expecting me to just give in to them mm-hmm. being that I was I had such a long record mm-hmm. and that I wouldn't be smart about it, but I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Well, and you were guilty of some stuff, right? I was. But you weren't selling it. Exactly. I'm really irritated by your public defender. I bet you were too. Very. Okay. I was so angry. I asked him, I said, dismissal, why is there a dismissal now? All of a sudden, Mm -hmm. they want to dismiss the charges against me. And he said, it's because the state of Idaho, it's because the Payette County Sheriff's Department lied on a sworn statement. Mm. And they're willing to dismiss charges. Wow. So did they all get dismissed or just that one? Every charge got dismissed. Wow. Wow. So. How long were you in jail waiting, going through all this? Oh, my word. It was almost a year of my life sitting And this was after... Dave, and you had worked with Dave, right? Yes. Okay. I was no it, longer working for Dave at this time. But but it was later. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is this jail or prison? This is jail. Okay. This is the Payette County Jail that I'm sitting in. Back up a little bit here. Okay. I got arrested that morning, and Anna got arrested as well. Oh. And she was charged with felony possession as well. Oh, wow. Now they found the meth on her. Mm. So she was guilty. Where did the kids go? They went with their grandparents. Okay. So we both get arrested. Um, Anna ends up getting probation, doesn't end up going to prison, which is awesome. She Mm -hmm. gets out. I thought I was getting ready to get released. The parole, they were getting ready to reinstate my parole because the charges were dismissed. So now I'm going to get back out. I was then served with a warrant Mm. the next day out of Ada County for forgery. So I get transferred from the Payette County Jail down to the Ada County Jail now, and now I'm facing felony forgery charge for the stolen motorcycle. I had made a decision while I was sitting there. Mm -hmm. I just almost got sentenced to life in prison Mm -hmm. for a charge that was trumped up by the Sheriff's Department. I went into court, I admitted what I did down to every last word of everything that I did in that loan officer's building. I accepted it and I was sentenced to a two plus five. So potential seven years, right? But two for sure. Two for sure. Yeah. Okay. I sitting in front of the judge. You can't do less than two. No less than two. Okay sitting in front of the judge, and the prosecuting attorney brought up everything that I've done wrong in my life. Everything. That's their job, right? To make me look like the bad guy. Which I was. I wasn't a very good person. But how'd that feel? 
It sucks. Mm-hmm. It really sucks listening to somebody. Regale your life without, without all the other information. Yeah. The judge looks at me and he says, you do need to go to prison. Mm. He goes, but you do need to be on parole because you're very productive on parole. Mm. He goes, so you're going to go to prison for two years, but I want you back out because you do good under supervision. So I went back. What do you think the major contributing factors to you going to jail repeatedly were? My addiction is what led me to prison. You didn't seem to be afraid of committing a crime in fear of going back to jail. Like sometimes people go to jail and they're afraid to go back, even just like a local jail, right? For, you know, I know somebody that got a DUI. And (laughs) he doesn't ever want to go back to jail. And you just didn't have that. It's what you make it. Oh. It really is. Was it almost like we were talking about how you, when you got out, you went back to your friends and family and, or not even your family, but your friends and that drug scene and it was just comfortable for you? Was jail somewhat comfortable for you? It gets comfortable after a while. You get into a routine where every single day you have your day planned out before Mm -hmm. it even starts. There was addiction. And what do you think was the reason that led to your addiction? A lot of people aren't going to agree with me on this. Well, it's your life. They don't have to. A lot of people will say that your drug addiction and the way you turn out in life is based off of your childhood and your parents. Mm -hmm. I think that's a load of crap. Mm. I don't think your parents and their life choices determine what you're going to be in life. You make your own decisions. Now, their life Mm -hmm. may have paved the road for you. Mm Mm-hmm. But you make your own decisions at the end of the day. I agree with you at some point, right? There's at some point you're an adult and you have to take ownership of your responsibility and your choices in life. And, you know, in the olden days, like biblical days, you know, that might've been 13. Right. Right. Um, But I think we are coddled as a society a little bit more than that Mm -hmm. (laughs) in America. Um, I wonder... Do you think that, I mean, me just looking in on the story today, I'm wondering if the instability of not knowing where you're going to live, the seeing that drug use wasn't a big deal and being offered it seems like a contributing factor to the start of it, to me. It is. Like, I think that paves the road. A factor. Yeah. Yeah. Not not that that it's your mom or dad's responsibility. But at the same time, that's how we learn. We model after our parents, right? Yes. So it'd be hard not to see in my children even some of the things that they've modeled after me that have been harmful to them. You're taught your whole life though in school that Uh drugs are bad. Yeah. And everything is bad. Crime is bad. Drugs are bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Whether you see it at home or you you see it on TV, I don't believe that my parents are to blame for my addiction. Oh, I don't I don't think they're to blame. So I grew up similarly to you, but it was alcohol. So alcohol was very acceptable in my family. I mean, my mom wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal for us to drink. In fact, she would hand us beers at the lake. So for me, it was super acceptable. 
it was like, okay, this is just what you do. This is how we do things. It's okay to drink. And I was young. I was probably 13. Um, but it was just how you did things. And it, I wonder if that affected me and just the normalcy of it. Because I have friends whose parents didn't do that. Right. And they didn't get into the kind of trouble I did. <laughs> and so I wonder, I, I guess you have to wonder how much of that affected me. Because when your mom or parent gives you permission to do something, even if it is illegal, it's like saying it's okay. I see what you're saying. Uh-huh. And then it's it's not a big deal. Or my dad as well. I mean, he bought me beer and he was a recovering alcoholic. I mean, he hadn't drank since before I was born, but I was in high school and I'd say, Hey, we're going out tonight. We need beer. (laughs) And he'd get us beer. Right. And so I didn't really have anyone saying no, or this is a bad idea. I thought this is just how you do it until I had kids. You know, then I, I was guys never did the thing where you stood out in front of the grocery store and asked people to buy your beer. Oh, we did that. We, We even went further. We asked, Every because we didn't have money either, so <laughs> we'd ask everyone if we could borrow a dollar from them that we probably won't be paying back. But do you have a dollar? And we get enough dollars, and then we'd ask the you know local buyer. <laughs> oh yeah, guy behind the store. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, and then and then he would buy us the alcohol for the evening as well. Do you feel any responsibility for what you've taught your kids during this? Yes. Like about doing these things in front of them. A hundred percent. So why would you think that your parents don't have any responsibility? I'm not saying they don't have responsibility. (laughs) I'm saying their drug addiction and drug habits that I've witnessed Uh paved the road for me. They helped me learn the drug scene. Right. So that's... I believe that me doing drugs is not their fault. I I would say eventually, but... Would you have done them without their permission? Yes. Would you have done it? I don't think I would have done it. Would you have done it if you hadn't been exposed to it by your parents? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe you're right. Well, I'm not saying this to blame our parents. It's more of, um, because I've done, you know, I've drank in front of my kids. I've done things in front of my kids that I'm not proud of. Um, I've had other issues in my life, right? I had some codependent behavior that I taught them that was really highly inappropriate. And they've had to unlearn a lot from me because they modeled, right, what I learned. And setting boundaries is something I just recently learned that, you know, we did a whole podcast on that Tyler's had to learn. So I'm not saying this to beat up on your parents or my parents. Um, My parents are completely forgiven and I understand that they were hurt and broken. And that's the place they came from. And they didn't, honestly, didn't know better. Like they did the best. I hate, you know what I hate? I hate that saying they did the best they could because they didn't, right? right? And did I do the best I could? No. I could have walked with God sooner. I could have understood what it was to be a parent. I could have learned what love was earlier. I could have done a bunch different. So did I do my best? No. Did my mom? I mean, does anyone? Nobody really. <laughs> I also have this opinion, like wherever we are is all we can give and do. And if somebody 
like one of our parents wasn't loved appropriately or had had trauma happen to them and they didn't know how to deal with it properly, it comes out in weird ways. It does for me. It did for my mom. It did for my dad. And so, you know, my dad had PTSD. He was in the war. He had a tough time, you know, and his dad died really young. There was a whole bunch of trauma there. And I feel safe talking about them because he died a year ago (laughs) and and, you know, I'm, I can't really hurt him by saying this. And it's, it is his story. So I'm trying to be cognizant that we don't share other people's stories, but our own. Um, but also, you can't help but notice a pattern in these stories. So there is a huge issue of men in prison who don't have fathers available to them. Correct. And that's a really, it's like a huge percentage. And I just can't believe that that isn't part of what got you there. And this is just my opinion. This is not your, yeah. A lot of people look for somebody to put the blame on. Yes. Instead of themselves. I think you're right in all areas of life. I I think what I get concerned about when people dismiss where the problem started Mm -hmm is then they don't completely fix it. Do you know what I mean? They don't break that chain. Not that either one of my parents, it's none of their fault who I am today because at some point I'm an adult and I have to make decisions and I get the choice. I get to learn and grow or I get to use a victim card. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's ever good, but I think if we don't recognize where the problem started it opens us up to a vulnerability down the road. Meaning, oh my goodness, I have this person in my life who has experienced a huge amount of trauma when she was a child. All the way she was, from the time she was a child till she was 50. I mean, and, and it's almost like trauma was attracted to her. It was multiple things that happened to her. And she wasn't treated appropriately by her parents or by the men in her life. And it's almost like there was a pattern repeating itself. And I think if we don't see the pattern, right, that often develops with our parents or our role models when we're young, we start to repeat it in different ways. Mm-hmm. It, it just keeps showing up. So I would try to tell her, you know, you need to get counseling because it's showing up. You just think you're healed because <laughs> right. I could see it. Not that I think you're healed. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm saying this more for viewers who might be watching. Um, But she wouldn't focus on that because she just wanted to be healed, right? She wanted to say she was healed, but it came out in weird ways. Like she was super controlling because she couldn't control her environment when she was a young girl. She controlled her. She was super controlling and reactive because she was in pain. So it comes out in different ways. And it's not that you want to beat up your parents, Right. But it's, we have to understand where this started. I think it all starts. You're right. It does all start with your parents, but. I mean, it could be a teacher. It it doesn't necessarily have to be one person, right? My mom taught me how to do math. Yeah. That's awesome. So I blame her for teaching me how to do math. I do. Oh, I thought you said math. No, math. (laughs) I thought you said like math and I thought that was sweet because my mom didn't teach me math. (laughs) My mom taught me how to do methamphetamine. Okay. And I blame her for that. 
Yeah. But I don't blame her for the decisions I made after that. Mm. So you were 13. I was a kid. And your brain wasn't fully formed. Correct. Not that I'm giving you an excuse. I'm just saying that's that's a lot of responsibility for a 13-year-old to take. So when your daughter turns 13, mm-hmm. would you think she should be have that kind of responsibility? No. But you, for some reason, needed to have that kind of responsibility. I was very curious. Not that your daughter would do meth. Let's say it's a different thing, okay? Right. Let's say you're a shoplifter. Let's pretend like you're a kleptomaniac mm-hmm. and you teach your daughter how to do it. Mm-hmm. And she's 13 and thinks this is a good plan and continues to do it even though you showed her one time. Right. Would you think that was your responsibility? I would. I would take responsibility for that. And at 13, how could it be hers? Right. She doesn't have, you know, she's not an adult. She doesn't even have the ability to consent or know. You know, we look to our parents to see what's right and wrong. True. And I'm not saying I want to beat up your mom because I'm really proud of her. And your dad, I'm sorry because he passed not long after my dad passed, right? Mm -hmm. I think. You know, they're in their own broken world. They but I, 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 I get concerned when people are judging. The, it's almost like taking responsibility and judging ourselves at a younger age. Right. <laughs> then we really had the ability to form the right opinion. My mom holds a lot of guilt for what's happened in my yeah. life. Well, I mean, we don't want that either. Because you've forgiven has. her, right? I have. Yeah. And she's, she's an amazing person now. Mm-hmm. She was lost. Yeah. She was so far lost that she didn't know what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And I can say the same for my parents, right? They were in living in trauma without ever getting real help. So how could they have really done better when they're not even dealing with their own stuff? Right. Right. And so I do have a lot of compassion for the pain that they went through that got them to the, to where they were. And I'm, I don't even know that they need to be forgiven. I mean, I don't feel this irritation or uncomfortableness with them. It's more of, I mean, I guess I did in my 20s. I was angry at my mom um, and my dad. I was I was angry because I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. I had no compassion for what they might have been through to get there. But But today, I do. But I also recognize that, okay... This was wrong. We need to be more careful with our kids. This is wrong. When I mess up with my kids, I need to tell them it's wrong so they don't do that with their kids. That's just kind of my answer to things. Doesn't make me right. Just my opinion. All right, moving on. So we somewhat agree, disagree on where the responsibility lies. Mm -hmm. Um, When you were 13... I think when you're in your 20s, it's fully your responsibility because you know right from wrong from society, like you said, from school, from being around people. You know what the law is. Your heart rate got raised when a cop came to the door. You knew. Exactly. You knew it was wrong. Yes. But you were okay with it being wrong. It was. Why do you think? Anytime somebody decides to do drugs or break the law, Uh that's their own choice. They've made that Mm -hmm. choice. So when I decided we're going to do some drugs... We're going to have a good time. I made that choice. So it was what you did also socially for fun. Yes. Okay. 
I really enjoy being in that circle as um, I like to be the center of attention sometimes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so if you're the guy with the drugs. Yes. Everybody's going to so, want to be with you. That's interesting because we did a podcast on self-image. You should watch it. But it, it, it kind of talks about, you know, especially if you didn't, so I'm looking at your childhood. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just pretending to be one right now. But I look at like your childhood and you said you didn't have a lot of friends. Right. Because it was hard because the circumstances. And so, and I kind of understand that to some level too, because a lot of kids maybe couldn't come play at my house <laughs> mm-hmm. and, or they couldn't, they could hang out with me, but some kids just couldn't hang out with me, but they would maybe, and they'd have to sneak, which you know, I mean, they have to, they tell you this and it, you, it just makes you feel less than. Right. So in an effort to feel more than, I was the party girl. I was always the fun girl. Let's go party. You know, let's go do th- whatever. And it kind of fed that within me to be okay, to be all right, that I was okay, that I was worthy. Can you relate to that? Um, not really. Um never really felt worthy. I've always felt, and still to this day, sometimes I don't feel like I'm good enough or I am enough. Mm. I battle that a lot. I think that is the problem of humanity. Yeah. I mean, that. do you think that that may be the contributing factor to where this road led? Could be. Very well could be. I don't feel, let me see, how do I say this? Yeah, I don't feel that I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever felt that I'm good enough. Do you have moments of it? Sometimes. When it pertains to my kids and something mm-hmm. good that they've done. Mm-hmm. But as a husband, I don't feel that I'm, I'm good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I will say I. That's what I related to because I would do things like be the party girl to try be worthy and be good enough, like in my peers' eyes. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say that that was also the issue with the codependency, is I didn't feel good enough, so I had to be the helper. Mm-hmm. I had to be the person who solved all the problems, paid for the lunches, do, did all of that, so people would like me. Um, and people just do it differently. Right, they they look for their that recognition that that spot through maybe stuff through materialism through work through drugs because you're trying to, to fe- hide something. Yes, in your and life. you're trying to feel all right, and you don't quite feel all right. But I, I, the more I learn about life, the more I think everybody feels this on some level. Yeah, and we're all kind of walking around like we're the only ones feeling it. Until I met God. <laughs> and and I think that was began my journey with him was okay, what is love? And he took me on this journey teaching me what love was. And I asked God, how do you see me? And I start seeing myself through his eyes and I start to feel like enough. But is is it like that all the time now? No. But it's the only time I felt enough. Right. Only time is through God's eyes. Um, never through man's eyes because I've, I never could be enough in this world. It's, 
it's how the design works, right? Exactly. And they don't, the world doesn't want you to think you're enough, right? Or we wouldn't have Instagram with people selling a life that isn't real. <laughs> we wouldn't have Facebook with people saying how great everything is when you know, <laughs> you know what's really believe. going on inside, <laughs> right? All make believe. <laughs> it is. Or people wouldn't do that. All right. So Josh, thank you so much for sharing those things that led up to where you are. I have to say, you know, we talked about it when we took a break here a minute ago, like it is just inconceivable to me that you have lived this life knowing you, right? you know, and I will say maybe in 2012, we had a couple incidents a few years before that with some employees where Dave felt it was really important for me to separate. Um, Like I wasn't allowed to be around the employees anymore. Okay. Um, we had somebody break into our house and we had another employee oh. um, make threats and it was a safety issue. Right. So you're, pro- I think you're the first employee that has like been in our home. <laughs> you're the first since then. Yeah. Since years ago. Um, so, you know, we completely trust you (laughs) and feel good about you. And you're more than just an employee, obviously you're a friend and a business partner, right? So we're just, we're grateful to have you in our lives. And it's, it truly is inconceivable that you live this life. When you say these things, I cannot really grasp how that person is the person I know. I think if you were to remove the tattoos off my body, Uh uh-huh. Um, and you met me just on the street, you would have no idea. So even if I saw your tattoos, just because I'm not really adept in this world to knowing what's happening, I wouldn't mean to me in this day and age that you've been in prison. Right. But other people can recognize that? If you've been to prison and you've seen prison tattoos, okay, it's real easy to spot the other prison tattoos. Okay, so when you say that, is it a coloring or is it a specific design? It's the lightness of the black work. It's the oh. single line work is real common in the prison. Oh, because they don't have all the tools. Exactly. Okay, so you would like those removed? If I could remove from my knuckles to my elbow, I would love that. Oh, it'd be so much pain. I know, but I would be willing to go through the pain to have it gone. Why would that be important to you? Because I don't want to be judged anymore based on my appearance. Mm. When I go places with my family or my wife, and <clears throat> for instance, we went to Silverwood a few months back for my daughter's birthday, uh-huh. and we went to the water park. I came out of there with my shirt off, and I felt embarrassed. Mm with the political tattoos on me and the dumb racial propaganda. Mm-hmm. It just, it's embarrassing. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Like, I, I truly, I don't see them that way, but I don't know. Right. So I'm assuming when somebody does know, they, they've probably been in your shoes. Yeah. Probably don't have a lot of room to judge. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess my prayer for you would be to relieve yourself of other people's opinions and judgments because it doesn't matter. What matters is God, your family, your wife, your cool grandma, your mom, Yeah. yeah, your daughter, your son. Like their opinion matters, right? 
nobody else's. We live our life based on what people think about us. We don't have to. I know we don't have to. It's a choice. But people will go broke trying to oppress people they don't know. Yeah, they will. It's a sad thing. I think we used to do that. <laughs> it is. It is. Like, it's truth. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be. We don't have to. We can just choose not to. We can. It's a hard choice, especially, <laughs> when, as, you know, and we were talking about actually beautiful women the other day mm-hmm. and how like a man who, um, this is a psychological a psychology thing. This isn't me. This is another psychologist was talking about this. Not another as if I'm one. I'm just an armchair psychologist. Right. Um, she was talking about how the power of a beautiful woman mm-hmm. and how men who maybe didn't have access to that when they were younger or, um, because of maybe they weren't attractive enough or they didn't have enough money or whatever they thought would produce this beautiful woman. And so they do these things to produce this, to produce a relationship with this beautiful woman, things that they wouldn't normally do, like spend more money, do these crazy things that they wouldn't even ever do just to have this ego filled of this beautiful woman. It's kind of like what you're talking about, the money. I'm just comparing it to a a different item. Every guy wants a beautiful woman. Well, it's also an item to him, Mm -hmm. right? This isn't a relationship. This is, I want this on my arm and I'm going to pay for it. And it's a very shallow way of looking at the world, but it's also very dangerous because you can also see the danger of the beautiful woman who is with you for money, perhaps, because then you're replaceable. Right. And I think that's the same thing with money, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> if we're impressing somebody with our beautiful woman or our amount of money, then it, it's a replaceable situation if we're not impressing them with our inner selves, like of who we truly are, of our friendship, of our loyalty, of our love. But if you take a step back, when you meet somebody the first thing you're going to do is look at that person. And even though you might not think you are, you're judging them based on their appearance before you even know them. I I think we do a quick scan, right? So if I show up to your house and you don't know me, just based off the prison tattoos, you're you're going to create this image of me in your mind before you even know me. Well, I don't think I knew your story when I first met you or saw you. I didn't have any of those thoughts. Really? I didn't. I, I didn't. Because I don't, I don't, I didn't know. Like, I don't know things like that. You know what I mean? I'm not right. adverse to like what a prison tattoo is versus a regular tattoo. And tattoos have become so acceptable in society. My kid has them and we begged him not to get them. And you know, that's what they do. Right. It's what they do. It's <laughs> My son already has one. Yeah. So it's just normalized now. So, I mean, you couldn't be, have been through this in a better time in history I mean, if this was 20, 30 years ago, you would stick out, right? Yeah. You don't really stick out anymore. That's good. Because I don't want to. You don't. You don't. But also, even if you did, I don't want you to rock that with confidence. Like, this is who I am. I was here and now this is who I am. And you should be proud of who you are because you've come a long way. You've beat this. You've beat the system. You've flown. You have to beat the system every day. Yeah. Every day. 
Well, there's a system in your head you got to fight too, right? Yep. <laughs> and you're just on the last leg. <laughs> you, you know, you're yeah. there, you're flying, you're thriving. I'm really, I'm proud of you knowing who you are. I think you've, you've done a great job with your life and your family and building that. Oh, I think thank you. it's commendable, even if you hadn't been where you've been. Right. You know? It's a battle every single day. That's awesome that you're fighting it. Some people give up. Right. The second you feel that you're comfortable with mm -hmm. drug use is the day you're going to relapse. You have to wake up every single day and tell yourself, I'm not going to get high today. You know, they say that with every issue. I was just, just hearing a pastor talk about this with adultery. He thought he was adultery proof because he was a pastor. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I was just got complacent with it. And then he got involved in porn and it became an addiction and it moved into his family. Yeah. I mean, I think it's in every area, if you're complacent that it can't happen, not that we want to constantly be on guard, but we don't want to be so arrogant to think we can't be affected by life. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that story of your early childhood life and the things that led you down this road. Of course.